Good morning. It's good to see you. Glad you're here today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining right now from an off-site campus or on the internet or maybe in the chapel or the warehouse. We're glad that you guys are along also. Um, a little bit of a soggy weekend, huh? It's, good. it's starting to clear up a little bit. Last night, there was so much water that somebody said they saw a duck in the parking lot with an umbrella. Now, I don't know <laughs> that's true or not, but, uh, but anyway. Hey, listen, let me ask you a question as we begin today. How many of you have ever witnessed a real live miracle? Anybody ever witnessed a miracle? You've seen miracles? Okay, yeah. Yeah, and uh, when I talk about miracle, Webster defines miracle as this, an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. It's when something so big, so unusual, so powerful happens that you've got to go, there's God. God has intervened in some way, somehow, uh, within human affairs. Uh, Let me ask it from just a little different point of view now. You don't want to raise your hands. Just kind of listen to this. Uh, How many of you have ever read about a miracle in the Bible and you wondered, did that really happen? I mean, you, you seriously, you just, you know, you read about uh, Jonah uh, going into the belly of a big fish and he's there for three days and then he gets puked up onto the shore and, uh, excuse me, I shouldn't use the word puke, Maybe he, he was barfed up, okay, he was barfed up <laughs> onto the shore and he lived to tell the story and you go, did that really happen, okay? Or maybe... You know, it's when Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead after his body started to decay. They said he'd been in there so long that he stank. In the King James that I grew up with, he stanketh, stinketh. But anyway, and you go, I wonder if that could really happen. Or maybe it was uh, in the book of Acts when Philip the evangelist, did he actually do a Star Trek-like teleport from one place to another? Did that really happen? Maybe you settle all that and you go, okay, God can do all that. But does God work miracles today? And here's even a deeper question. Could anything like that happen to me? Could God work a miracle in me? Well, Jesus said, in fact, here's what I want to do. Uh, on your outline, did you get an outline sheet as you came in? Um, or if you have a Bible or you know, phone that you have your Bible on or, or whatever you use. John 14 and verse 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples in like this crucial kind of last minute uh, meal. Um, And here's what he says. I'd like us to read it out loud. Let's do it in the campuses too. You guys at West, you be sure that you're reading Somerville. Um, Let's read it out loud together. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. So apparently... It was the intent of Jesus for his followers to see miracles. He said, uh, the works that I have done, which referred to miracles, he said, you're going to do, and even greater, because I'm going to the Father. And what he meant by that was that he did miracles under the power of the Holy Spirit, which up until Jesus' time, the Holy Spirit kind of worked in individuals, but not in whole groups of people. He said, I'm going to the Father. The Holy Spirit is going to be unleashed. It's the promise Holy Spirit is going to be unleashed on all believers, and you're going to see some things happen. You're going to see some things that are extraordinary events, manifesting divine intervention in human affairs, some things that can only be explained by God. So here's what I want to do today. I want to, first of all, take a look at 
some types of miracles that we may expect to see. And then I want to kind of do a, take a, a, a case study from the story that we've been following uh, in our Make Room uh, study together. Have you, have you enjoyed the Make Room study together? Are you guys taking advantage of meeting with people? I mean, there are thousands of people that are meeting every week, and uh, it's so cool, some of the stories that are coming out of it. And can I say, we're in our third week of the Make Room Bible study, it's not too late to join. It's even not too late to start a group. You can start a group at any point that you want to, uh, and you can track along uh, just fine. And what we're doing on Sunday mornings then and Saturday nights is we are um, uh, using a story from 2 Kings chapter 4, and I want to take a practical example of a miracle from there and see what we can learn from it. But first, I'd like to just talk about the kind of miracles that we could expect to see. And the first one is this, is the miracle of God's creation. The miracle of God's creation. That's when you come face to face with the evidence of a grand design behind the universe. This happens in moments, okay? It happens in moments. It's something will happen, and it may have been there all along, or the knowledge may have been there all along, but all of a sudden it comes into your radar. It's like, wow, God did that. God created something. Let me tell you when it happened to me. It happened to me um, the first time, really, at the birth of our children. Um, I almost missed the birth of our first two children, uh, Joshua and Jason. Uh, Jason was the firstborn, and, and uh, he, uh, we had classes that we went to. They were real young, you know. We had classes, and, and I just didn't think I needed to go to the classes. I was, had other, obviously, very important things to do. And I went, in order to go in with Debbie, I had to go to one class, and so I went to the final class. And in that class, they showed a movie of somebody actually having a child, something I had never seen before, had never really thought about. And as we're driving away from the uh, clinic that day, um, I turned to Debbie and I said, yeah, i got to be honest with you, I don't think I can do this. (laughs) And she said to me, let me be honest with you, I don't think I can do it either, but I don't have a choice. And I could tell by the way she just spit off the word choice that I didn't have a choice either. Okay, so I was going to go. And then Joshua, and I'm glad I did. And then Joshua, uh, we were in, in the process, we were actually in the birthing room. And Debbie looked around and didn't see me, so she asked the nurse, where's Greg? And the nurse said, well, he wasn't feeling, uh, he wasn't feeling good. And she said, well, I'm not feeling so hot myself. You go get him and get him in here. And so... And so I did good on the ones after that, okay? But uh, I can remember when the babies were born, just experiencing an awe at the Creator. That This is a miracle. Here's what we would do. And nurses, give me some slack on this. Y'all do a great job. But what we would do is we'd unwrap them and look at them and, you know, check that all the moving parts were moving and there and all of that. But when we would, it would emphasize that this is an act of God. This is an act of the creator. In fact, as you study the parts of a human body, I don't see how you can study them and not realize that there is a God. Take the eye, for instance, the eye. In fact, probably the greatest proof uh, for a grand design and and a creator is is when you look at yourself in the mirror uh, in the morning. Now, it's not the fact that somebody would actually love you looking like that. That is a miracle, okay? (laughs) But the eye itself, did you know that the eye focuses and has muscles 
that focus and refocus over 100,000 times a day. Um, each eye has a retina that covers less than a square inch. Listen to this, listen to this. Covers less than a square inch and contains 137 million light-sensitive cells. Now, I do some photography. I'm a very amateur photographer. I just enjoy doing it for fun. Uh, but the most expensive cameras, I don't have one. Love to have one someday. But the most expensive cameras, um, all they try to do is emulate what your eye does naturally. And they can't even come close. The eye is an amazing, amazing thing. Even Charles Darwin, um, the kind of the, the founder of nat natural selection, wrote a lot of books about it, admitted that to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd to the highest degree. So it seems absurd, but he wrote a lot of books uh, uh, saying that, that that's what he, what, what he believed. The brain is even more amazing. Um, the government wants to do studies. In fact, the president in his State of the, the Union speech this week alluded to the fact that they want to do some studies to see if scientists can map the brain. Because scientists don't know how the brain stores information or how thought emerges. We know a lot about the brain, but there's just a lot that we, we, we just don't understand. About a year and a half ago, I uh, had some stroke symptoms that looked like stroke symptoms. I was at home and half of my face froze and my arm uh, uh, and down to my thumbs. And so we went to, you know, the hospital right away and they did several brain scans. And I was in for, um, I don't know, I can't remember, three or four days. And, and at the end of the time, the neurosurgeon came in and said, well, we, we've studied it all and we've got results, I want to talk to you about it. You know, that's a scary moment. And he said, I've got good news, uh, not as good a news, and some good news. It sounded like an Oreo cookie to me, you know. And I said, okay, well, fire away. Good news. Good news is you have not had a stroke. It is not a pre-stroke thing. Uh, it is called atypical migraines, and um, you're going to be okay. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't pretend anything long-term. If, if we can change your lifestyle a little bit, a little less stress, a little less caffeine, some of those kind of things think you'll be okay. And we changed our lifestyle. And in a year, praise God, we haven't had any symptoms whatsoever of that. Then uh, I said, so what is the not as good of news? He said, well, the not as good as news is that apparently when you were born, all the wiring did not hook up right. And uh, to which my wife goes, I knew it. I knew it. I knew there was something, you know. And uh, I said, well, that's not good news. And he said, no, but there is better news. The restorative process of the brain apparently rewired itself to where most things work pretty good. <laughs> I said, well, that's good. That's good news. It's incredible what the brain does. Now, with that information in mind, I've been even more attuned to the incredible creative power in the brain. In fact, um, you're going to laugh at me at this, but I'm just going to be transparent with you. This is what happens in my brain and in my life. Uh, when I go home... Just about every day, I kind of unload the stuff out of my car. And I want to get it all in one trip. You understand what I'm saying? So usually, you know, I've got um, a coffee cup and, you know, maybe some trash, a trash bag or two. And I've got my iPad and iPhone. And uh, I'll, I'll have like 
this finger right here and this one is holding something and then something between here, something between here and here and then I'll have something else over here and I'll have something underneath my arm here and arm here. And then maybe some groceries right here that Debbie wanted to bring home and I'm, this is how I go in the door. If you're my neighbor, you've seen this happen. And what I do is on the way to the door, there's a standard issue Mount Pleasant trash can. You guys know what those look like? They're very attractive, brown, big old things. And they've got this little latch on them. And generally, I'll be able to uh, get the latch open like this, keeping my elbows in. It's kind of like golf. And then uh, open the, the trash can. And then the next thing is to selectively drop the proper things into the trash can. You know where I'm going there. And so my brain, which is rewired, tells this finger to release and this finger to release, but this one to stay closed and drops the two things that I want into the trash can, which are not sequentially in order. Do you understand that? And it works almost all the time, okay? Now, I do have to do dumpster diving occasionally. You guys know what I'm saying. When that happens, I remember the first time that happened just a few months ago that I, I thought about, I was thinking about my brain, I was thinking about God, and I was thinking about what an awesome thing just happened that I take for granted. I had a worship experience right there at the trash can. I'm serious. And every time I go home and I go to the trash can, I have a worship experience. I think, that's a miracle. I have experienced the creation of God. And it's a miracle. Now, apparently, David uh, felt the same way because in Psalm, uh, let's see, where is it? In Psalm chapter... Uh, Let's wait on David a minute, shall we? I got a couple of, couple of ideas before then. That's my brain. Um, so, so let's think about that. How does it happen? How does it happen? How does your brain, how does your eye do that? Two options. Uh, one is called natural selection, which I learned in school, uh, which you know, basically says a random collision somewhere, you know, uh, set into uh, a process of motion that ultimately created what we have here today. Uh, George Gallup, the pollster, says, I could prove God statistically. Take the human body alone, the chance that all the functions of the individual would just happen is a statistical monstrosity. He said it's just, just almost impossible. Even Darwin said it's a, it's a stretch to just believe that by itself. The other is intelligent design, natural selection, intelligent design, which says there was a designer behind all of it whether he did it in six days, literal days, uh, or whether he did it over millions of years with some process of evolution, there's a, there's a designer behind the process. And I believe there's too much evidence of a designer for one not to exist. That's why I worship at trash cans. Now, let's get to David. <laughs> Psalm 139 and verse 14, David said this. In fact, let's read this one out loud. Can we read it out loud? You guys in Greenville, let's read it together. Robert Knight is leading worship in Greenville today. Wow, that's incredible. And his lovely wife, which we're glad for his wife, because she's carrying it right now. <laughs> Not true. You guys don't even know Robert. I'm just ragging you, Robert. We love you. Uh, Psalm 139.14, let's read together. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. When I read Scripture, here's how I read Scripture. I'd read scripture and I'd try to get in the moment. What was he thinking? What was he doing? Where was he at when he wrote that? Why did he write that? And 
you know, it's just like you don't just pop off, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. You have a trash can experience. And he had one somewhere that goes, that's incredible. What an awesome, awesome God that we have. So here's what I want to challenge you with. I want to challenge you uh, this week and for the rest of your life to look around. And when you see daily evidence of a miracle of creation, that there is, there is a grand designer behind whatever it is that you see, I want you to use it as an opportunity to worship him. Okay? Here's the second one. And that's what I, I'm going to call the miracle of God's favor. Miracle of God's favor. And that's this. When the results, whatever the results are, far exceed the amount of effort that's being put in. Sometimes that's a miracle from God. That is a miracle of favor. Um, we can find that in Leviticus 26. I'm reading through the Bible right now, and this week was uh, the end of Leviticus, praise God, and now it's the beginning of Numbers, which is even more interesting. And in Leviticus 26, um, the kind of chapter heading in the Bible that I'm reading says rewards for obeying God. Okay? And in the previous chapters, he had talked about what obedience looks like. And in this chapter, he says, here's going to be the rewards of obeying me. And about halfway down the scripture that you've got in your outline sheet, it says this. It says, you will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase 10,000. Now, those numbers don't add up. Says five will chase a hundred, and a hundred will chase ten thousand. And this is important because if you forget this, um, you can get in trouble. In fact, a few chapters later, in fact, this morning in my reading in uh, Numbers, they went into they sent spies into the Promised Land. Ten of the spies came back and said, "There's no way, no way that we can do battle with the people that are there. We need to stay out of there." They were forgetting the favor of God. The fact that five of them would chase 100 and 100 would chase 10,000. Well, what is that? The next verse says, I will look on you with favor. Circle the word favor. I will look on you with favor and I will make you fruitful. What is favor? Favor is when the numbers don't match, when the results are greater than the effort. Favor follows obedience. In fact, Jesus said it this way in the New Testament, Matthew 6, 33. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. What are the things? They're food, shelter, clothing. In fact, uh, the things of life, whatever it is that you need. In fact, the verse before, which I didn't put on my outline sheet, uh, in the New Living Translation, verse 32 says this, the things that dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. So there are people of faith and people not of faith. And he said, those not of faith their thoughts are dominated every morning when they wake up. Well, how am I going to get more money? How am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to, uh, am I going to have enough food? What, what if an economy tanks? What am I going to do? Those are the thoughts, the worries that dominate the thoughts of those who don't believe. Jesus said, you're to be different. He said, if you are obedient, if you seek first the kingdom of God, if you put God first in your finances, in your relationships, in your schedule, in everything that you do, if you put God first, then you will walk in the favor of God. And God will give you the things that everybody else is worrying about and that consumes their minds. It's the favor of God. It's a miracle when the numbers don't add up. I asked a poor man 
uh, one, one time in our congregation why he tithed. So what, because he was very, very faithful in giving God 10% of everything he had. So why do you do that? And he said, I want to be obedient to God so that I can experience the favor of God on my finances. I said, well, that makes sense. That's biblical. But can I press you a little bit further? I'm, I'm just going to be honest here. Pointed out that other people had more money and newer things than he did. How do you handle that? He looked at me and he said, the favor of God causes my old stuff to last longer than their new stuff does. <laughs> he wasn't limited by what he saw. He was experiencing the favor of God. And that is a miracle. And so I want you to look around. And when you choose to be obedient to God, or you see somebody who is being obedient to God, you can expect God's favor, which means the results are far greater than the effort put forth. And when you do, you worship that it's a miracle. Miracle of favor, miracle of creation. There's one more. And that's the miracle of God's direct intervention. Miracle of God's direct intervention. And that's the one we usually think about uh, when you answer the first question that I asked you today. Have you ever seen a real life miracle. I would say the first two are real life miracles, but we always think about the third one, God's direct intervention when something changes. Now there's a, a, an example of this, something that changes that only can be explained by God. There's an example of this in the story of Elisha and the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4. Now I'm not going to assume that all of us have been here the last two weeks, so let me just real quickly with like a sentence or two bring you up to date on what's happening with Elisha, the man of God, and the Shunammite woman and her husband. Um, there's a wealthy woman, her husband, they invite the man of God, Elisha, to come and eat with them, to develop a relationship. He comes to their home and he eats. Apparently things go well. Every time he comes through town, they invite him to eat. So he comes to their house every week to eat. Now, last week, we talked about the importance of food. Great message. I'm going to write a book, I think, Feasting Your Way to a Better Life. I don't think I am, but that would be a great book. Uh, how many of you, after last week, this week sat down for a slow, uninterrupted, non-iPad, iPhone, or television um, meal with either your family, your spiritual family, or somebody outside the faith? How many of you did that? Okay, was it good? Was it good? It was great. I enjoyed it. I want to challenge you and encourage you to do that. Somebody, somebody that I know said they're going to try to do it with all three of them twice a week. Now, how many of you know that is an overachiever? But anyway, they ate this meal. And eventually, the relationship grew to where they built a furnished room over the garage so that he could stay whenever he was in town. That's where he rested. And the principle of the series is you can't make God move in your life. But you can make room for God to move. And that's what they did. Now, we'll pick up the story from there. And I'm going to read in uh, 2 Kings 4 and verse 11. One day, Elisha returned to Shunem. And he went up to his upper room to rest. And he said to his servant, Gehazi, that's his assistant, tell the woman from Shunem I want to speak to her. And when she appeared, Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her this. We appreciate the kind concern that you have shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put a good word in for you to the king or to the commander of the army? He's saying, first of all, he asks his assistant to say it. Why does he do that? Maybe he speaks a different language. That's possible. I think it's because his assistant maybe has better social graces than he does. He's a prophet. Prophets are strange sometimes. And, just, you know, they, and so he says to his assistant, say this nicely and ask her if 
we can provide favor for her. We know people in high places. Okay, that's what he asked. And uh, she, she says, no. My family takes good care of me. She's a wealthy woman. She already has favor. Later, Elisha asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? Why does he ask Gehazi and why should Gehazi know? As you're going to find out, Gehazi knew right away. Because Gehazi is the personal assistant. You know, a lot of, a lot of times in business and sales, you, you, want to get to the, you want to get to the head guy, but the person that knows what needs to be done is the personal assistant. That's the, in my case, I am clueless. People will ask me, um, you know, when's this happening at the church? Or what's going on? And I'll go, I attend here. Um, I really don't know. But if you want to know, you call Kathy because Kathy knows because personal assistants know. Amen? Personal assistants know. And so he asked his personal assistant, Gehazi, so what can we do for her? Gehazi immediately says, she doesn't have a son. And her husband's an old man. So Elisha says, call her back again. When the woman returned, Elisha said to her as she stood in the doorway, this time he's speaking directly to her, he says, next year at this time, you'll be holding a son in your arms. Now, I want to take some principles from this. And the first one is, is this. God wants to give birth to a miracle inside of you. I believe that. Is that stretching the scriptures? I don't think so. I don't think so. It was a principle for her particularly, but I believe there's a principle here for all of us that God desires to give birth to a miracle inside of you. Something bigger than you could accomplish on your own for the glory of God. Something to where the numbers don't make sense. It may be vocationally. Maybe God is planting within you and you know who you are. He's stirring up a desire. He wants to give birth to a miracle of starting something. Maybe you're an entrepreneur type and God wants to give birth to a miracle in you. Maybe you're not an entrepreneur type. Maybe you're somebody that takes something that already exists and makes it better and God is stirring within you to give birth to a miracle to something for the glory of God. Or maybe you're a turnaround kind of a person and, and there's, there's, there's something business-wise that's dead and God is dealing with you and he wants to give birth to a miracle through you to give life to something that was dead. Could be relationally. God may be wanting to birth a partnership of some type. God may be wanting uh, to uh, birth a miracle uh, in just old friends or God may be wanting to, to do this. Maybe there's a relationship that's dead and God wants to revive it, and he wants to do it through you and birth the miracle so that everybody around will say, I would have never seen this coming. God must be in the middle of it. Or it could be a physical miracle. God wants to birth something significant, a miracle through you. Now, that's an exciting thought, but it can have its issues. And in this situation, it had major issues. Look at, look at how she responds. She doesn't respond. That's the most exciting news I've heard all day. We haven't been able to have kids, and now we're going to have one. Here's what she says. No, my Lord, she cried. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. Get into the emotions around that. It's like, it's like don't, don't jerk my chains. There was a time... When we had hope for that, but that time has passed, and we've learned how to deal with where we are right now. And I don't want to ignite something. You don't want to ignite something there. Don't play with me like that. And you may feel the same way as even we're talking about God birthing something inside of you. And you're going, don't get my hopes up. I'd love to believe that I could love again. But it's easier just to bury that dream. It's easier. 
Or I'd, I'd love to believe that we could succeed in business, but you know what? There's a lot of money and a lot of learning under that bridge. I've buried that, and it's a good place to stay. Or it might be I'd love to believe that God could use me again, that God could use me in a powerful way again, but you know what? I've failed before. Or maybe, maybe there's a way that I've disqualified myself, and it's best to leave that dream buried. 2 Kings 4 and verse 16. But sure enough, the woman became present, pregnant. And at that time, the following year, she had a son just as Elisha had said. Here's, here's what I thought as I was reading that. She doesn't want to go there. She has no faith for it. She doesn't even want to bring it up. Sometimes the dream is buried so deep in hurt and discouragement that it takes someone else to call it out. Someone with faith to call it forth. I can remember um, I began to have a dream of vocational ministry. We're all in ministry, okay? You understand that. We're all in ministry. All of us are. Uh, Some of us do this full-time. We get paid. The the only thing that that does is um, that I'm paid to be good. You're good for nothing, okay? So that's just, (laughs) it's not a big deal. But I had a dream to be in vocational ministry. I, uh, I became a youth pastor and got fired. Then I became a youth pastor again. That was my dad and got fired. And then I became a youth pastor to someone I didn't know and um, left my work at Hewlett Packard and, 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 and got fired. And when I got fired that time, he, he called me in after about a year. And he said, you know what, you need to go back and work in the secular field where you were from. You're never going to make it in vocational ministry. That's what he told me. So I was discouraged. It was just before I got fired the third time I went in um, in my denomination for ordination. And you, they had a verbal exam, which usually I can do pretty good at. And they had a writing exam. And I wasn't doing well at that. I'm going to blame those wires that didn't hook up. That's been a great excuse. I didn't know about it then, but I know about it now. And I wasn't doing very good at that whole deal. And um, I'm about a little over halfway through the test, and I just got so discouraged. I thought about, been fired, been fired. This job's not going well. I'm not doing good at the test. Maybe now's the time to cash it in. I can go back to HP, work for HP. They told me I could come back anytime I wanted to. So I got up, and I got my papers, and I took them to the guy that was giving the test. And I said, you know what? This has been a good run. I don't think this is what I'm supposed to do. And at that point, he became the Elisha in my life that called something out of me that I didn't even believe existed. He said, you can't do that. He looked at my test and he said, you wouldn't believe this. He said, but there, there have been three or four people that have already finished the test and you already have more questions answered right than any of them, which I thoroughly to this day believe that he lied to me. But God, <laughs> God took that lie <laughs> This guy reached inside of me, and he said, there's too much there. God, has, God wants to birth a miracle. He didn't use those words, but that's what he was saying. God wants to birth a miracle through you. And even though you don't believe, I believe. You know what? That's what happened to this Shunammite woman. She had no faith, but Elisha did. And in spite of her doubt, he spoke inside of her and called the dream forward. Let me ask you this. Is there someone around you? 
in your circle of influence. They may be here today, may be a part of your family or at work or whatever. And a dream has died. And God is, God is speaking to you. He said, I want you to blow on that dream. Blow on that little fire. I want you to call forth a miracle. See, what a powerful thing. It may be in your son or daughter. Could be in a father or mother. Could be in just a friend. But a powerful thing to be used by God to, to, to blow on the fire of a miracle that God wants to birth inside of them. Okay? Well, let's, let's move on. So she has a baby. One day when her child was older, we don't know how much older, maybe he was a toddler, maybe he was a teenager, he went out to help his father who was working with the harvesters and Suddenly he cried out, my head hurts, my head hurts. His father said to one of the servants, carry him home to his mother. And so the servant took him home, and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. And she carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God in that room that they had built, and shut the door and left him there. Here's the second principle. God wants to birth a miracle through you. Sometimes after a miracle is born, God allows your miracle to die. God allows your miracle to die. It may be in your business. It may be a dream. It may be the hope of a family. It's painful when it happens. I read this story. I get into the emotions of it. Here's a mother with a child that she never dreamed could be possible, and he's laying there in her lap, and he dies. I can't imagine that. Maybe you've been walking in the favor of God in obedience, and doors have opened, and the numbers have worked in your benefit. I mean, you're experiencing... God's abundance and his blessing. And then all of a sudden, as quickly as it opened, something happens. Maybe it's the economy, maybe it's somebody does something, says something, and the doors close, the numbers go south, food dries up, and the miracle dies. That's a hard place to be. I, uh, I remember having a, a dream, another dream, about 14 years ago. Felt like the Lord spoke into my heart that he wanted to use me, he wanted to birth out of me a dream to plant 2,000 churches in my lifetime. You need to understand that uh, I'm, I'm basically an evangelist. If you have, you know, there are apostolic gifts, there's probably some of that, pastoring gifts and, and teaching gifts and all of those types of things. But I always default toward evangelism, toward uh, thinking about those who have no relationship with God and what eternity is going to be like for them. And so that's where my default goes. It's not the best way to be. It's just how I am. And so, and so why plant churches? You know, aren't there enough churches already? Tim Keller in a book called The Center Church says this. He gives a lot of statistics. Here's one of them. It says the average new church gains one-third to two-thirds of its new members from the rank of people who are not attending any worshiping body. Okay, so a third to two-thirds of a new church um, come from outside uh, worshiping bodies. While churches over 10 to 15 years of age tend to gain 80 to 90% of new members by transfer from other congregations. This is just on average. And the average new congregation then will bring new people into the body of Christ at least six to eight times the rate of an older congregation of the same size. And so I, I, I innately know this. And I've got this vision to plant 2,000 churches, which seemed totally impossible. God brought a friend into my life. He was a guy I hadn't seen for a while. He'd been a successful church planter in a major city in America and grown a really significant church in a very hard place. He came back to visit with me and he said, I love Seacoast. I love the culture. I love everything about it. 
let's multiply this and let's see what, see what happens. And so he wanted to go to California, uh, right close to the beach. A lot of people are called to California. Not many to Kansas, but a lot to California. And, uh, and uh, he said, let's call it Seacoast and let's, let's plant a church. And so we did. And God's favor was on it. I mean, one of the greatest worship leaders in America uh, came to lead worship. It began to grow. People began to experience God. Seacoast Church in Laguna Niguel. And about a year into it, his wife called me. And she said, you've got to come out here. Things are not right. Come to find out her husband had been involved in a relationship with someone else. Um, it, it, there was so many crazy things. And this is a person that I love. And the church was in a total turmoil. I went that weekend, tried to speak some, some grace. And it, the bottom line is, we had to close the church down. Not only did we have to close the church down, Seacoast Church right here had put $100,000 into that church. $100,000. Now, that's a lot of money. I don't care how you talk about it. But back, roll back to when we had about 2,000 people, 1,500 to 2,000 people. That was a significant part of our budget. I was devastated. I cried out to God, God, how could this happen? God, you planted a dream within me. Now I've got to go tell our financial team that we've just blown $100,000. We've closed the doors down. That dream's dead. We'll never invest again. I, I, I wouldn't have the guts to go and say, hey, follow me again in this big idea. The dream died. And sometimes it does. And when it does, you cry out to God, where are you? That's what the Shunammite woman did. She had all kinds of questions. Um, but oftentimes, when a dream dies, when a miracle dies, uh, and you cry out, you cry out to God and you blame him for things that the enemy is actually doing. And you allow it to distance you from God. Here's, it's okay to cry out. It's okay to be angry. But you've got to learn to vent to, vent to the Lord, to vent vertically not horizontally. And that's what she did. If you read the rest of the story, she told her husband she's got to be away. She didn't tell him where. Um, she, she went to find the prophet. She had to get through Gehazi, his assistant. She wouldn't tell him what she wanted. She got directly to the prophet. And when she does, she says this, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up? This is somebody that's upset. She is extremely upset. She's going to the man of God with the source, with her, with her uh, upset. And then in verse 30, she says, as surely as the Lord lives, I won't go home unless you go with me. See, when a dream dies, you're going to have questions. Don't let them distance you from God. Go to him. Be tenacious. Don't just settle. And so she does. And then Elisha said to Gehazi, get ready to travel. I want you to take my staff and I want you to go. This is a staff. Now, there was something special. I don't know if this is upside down or right side. I don't use these very often. Um, there was something special about the staff. This was the tool that God used whenever Elisha was in a spot. Whenever he needed to experience the presence and power of God, God used this tool. He'd touch water with this tool, and apparently water would part. Apparently, um, apparently there was just something about the power of God in this. And so he told his assistant to take the staff. And he said, don't talk to anybody along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face, expecting 
that there's going to be a miracle that's going to happen because apparently that type of miracle had happened before. And so a little bit later it says, Gehazi uh, hurried on ahead and he laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. And so he returned to meet Elisha and said to him, the child is still dead. Here's the third principle. God wants to birth a miracle within you. The staff just scared the daylights out of me. It's principle one and a half. Sometimes God allows your miracle to die. And here's the third one. Just because the first attempt at a resurrection doesn't work, it doesn't mean it's time to quit. It didn't work. Put the staff on the kid. It didn't work. He's still dead. So we got a miracle. Miracle dies. We've tried to revive it with everything that we know how. It didn't work. Time to quit. Right? Because there is a time to quit. Time to quit. Apparently, this wasn't the time to quit. When Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed, and he went in alone. He went in alone, and he shut the door behind him, and he prayed to the, to the Lord. Listen, when a dream dies, when a miracle dies, there is a time when you need to go in alone, and you need to shut the door. How come? Because sometimes you just need to cry your eyes out. I've done that. You just need to cry your eyes out. Sometimes you need to holler at God. Don't feel bad about that. So that's what David did sometimes. David would say, I cannot believe that the unrighteous are prospering when good people aren't. What is up with that, God? But he wouldn't stop there. He wouldn't stop there. And there's a time when you just need to pray. And you need to pray. You need to close the door because there are voices. You, you need to shut off the voices that are telling you to quit. It's over. The dream's dead. There's a time to get real. You need to quit. You know what? There is a time that you need to quit. You need to quit on the relationship. You need to quit on the job. There are times when you need to do that. But you'll know. All of them won't know. Your girlfriend won't know. Your friends may not know. They're just going from their past history and they love you and they want to protect you. You will know. The Holy Spirit is very capable of saying it to you. When is the right time to quit? And apparently that wasn't the right time to to quit. Just because it didn't work, didn't mean it wasn't going to work in the future. So what did Elisha do after closing the door? He got a fresh word from God. And here's what God said. We're going to do it differently this time. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to lay down, watch this. I want you to lay down on the child's body, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, and hands to hands. You got a picture of that? Here's what you know. If this child gets raised from the dead, he's going to need a year of counseling to get through the first thing that he sees, okay? No wonder he closed the, the door. It's a good thing he closed the door, okay? Because that's a really unique situation. Here's the principle. God's path to a miracle for you may take you places you've never been and you're uncomfortable going. So I left my dream dead. Had a dream, 2,000 churches. First one, um, disaster. $100,000 gone. And then I met Billy Hornsby, this crazy Louisiana Cajun. And he said, when he came here, came here the first time, he said, I want to take you golfing. I said, okay. And it was the strangest round of golf I've ever had in my life. The whole time, it's like he's interviewing me. What's the dream in your heart? That's what he kept asking me. What's the dream in your heart? I didn't want to, I, I, I told him some things, but I didn't want to tell him the dream that was really down in there because that dream hurt. That dream was buried and learning to live with that particular dream. Maybe that was bad burritos. 
But he forced me and forced me and forced me. And finally I said, Billy, my dream is to plant 2,000 churches in my lifetime. And oh, by the way, we're 0 for 1. And it was a big flop. And I don't think I could, you know, ask for any money. It's over. Billy said, what if we do something different? You know, just because it's dead doesn't mean we can't do something different in the future. What if we did this? What if we got a group of us together? And they're all from Louisiana, so they're a little scary. And what, what, if, what if it was a we thing rather than just a you thing? And what if you guys finance just a couple of churches to start, and we'll get a system where we can pay back and make it happen and make it happen and make it happen? I thought, wow. Well, now that's possible. Oh, that's possible. So we started, and we did it. So what I want to say is hang in there. God has his reasons. Sometimes your miracle will die. Just because the first solution doesn't work, it doesn't mean it's time to quit. When what hasn't worked before isn't working anymore, don't stop working. Just do something different. And here's the fourth principle. When you're in a climate and atmosphere where nothing is impossible, then anything can happen. And so here's what he did. He went for it. He stretched, he stretched out on him. The child's body began to grow warm again. That had to be exciting. It's working. It's working. I can remember with the ark, the Association of Related Churches, which is what came out of Billy and I's conversation, began. And we, Seacoast Church, gave $50,000 for the first two church plants. And those churches started to grow. And they paid their money back so that we could plant some more. And then there were three. And then there were 10. And then there were 50. And now there's 300. And now there's one being planted every four days on average. This weekend, there are four churches being planted in Binghamton, New York, New Orleans, Louisiana, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and Boston, Massachusetts. Can I tell you something else? Last weekend, there were 11 churches that were planted. Last year, we planted 65 And of those 65 churches, on their launch day, this is the first day, listen to this, on the first day, 726 people made a commitment to Christ. 726 people on the first day made a commitment to Christ. What about that $100,000 that we lost? Well, that was an investment. Last year, 2012, art churches that were planted gave over $11 million to World Missions Project. Did you hear me? $11 $11 million. Okay, let me, let me put it to you like this. We invested $100,000. We thought we lost it, but it was just an investment in what didn't work. God returned that investment a hundredfold in one year. And that's happening every year. And as it gets closer to 2000, it will be millions, millions of dollars invested in the kingdom of God. The miracle that died is starting to come to life again. Elisha got up, he walked back and forth across the room once, stretched himself out again to the child, and this time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And then Elisha summoned Gehazi, called the child's mother. Listen, when a miracle that was dead comes alive, you've got to tell somebody. How have you know that? So he says, go tell her. And uh, she comes in, Elisha said, here's, here's your son. She fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. And when she took her son in his arms and carried him downstairs, and that's the end of the story. A miracle. So let me, let me ask you something. What about you? Are you worshiping the creator when you see evidence of his hand in creation? Are you having trash can moments? I want to challenge you to do that. And say, I've just seen a miracle. And worship God. 
Are you experiencing the favor of God where the numbers just don't add up in response to obedience to God? When you do, I want you to look at it and go, that's a miracle. Do you need God to birth a miracle through you? What have you, what have you just about turned the lights off on, on a dream that God has given you? See, when nothing is impossible, have you know anything can happen. And that's where you are today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for stories that encourage us with the miraculous power that's in your hand. And today I just pray that you would, your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this room, in all of the rooms that are listening. God, that you would push us further ahead than what we think is possible. We're going to believe you for miracles in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.